Guardian Unlimited. Hello and welcome to Islamophonic, your weekly trawl through all things Muslim. I'm Safraz Manzor and this week we're talking halal chocolate with a man they call the Muslim Willy Wonka. We're in Wales chatting to the Welsh Assembly's first Muslim MP. We're in the British Library looking at a fascinating exhibition of sacred texts. And we're in Toronto where I met the stars of Canada's hit comedy, Little Mosque on the Prairie. Assalamu alaikum Marlon. I'd like you to come by the mosque later for your conversion. The Shahada. Excellent! Allahu Akbar! Oh, 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 how joyous! At this rate, we'll convert every white person in town to Islam! <laughs> More from Little Mosque on the Prairie a little later. But first, you might have heard last week that the makers of Mars bars announced that they'd be using animal products in their chocolate bars. Now that was bad news for vegetarians, but not great news for Muslims either. Since then, that decision has been reversed after huge protests from vegetarians. But for those who want an alternative to the big brands, there are halal alternatives. Umar Foods has been making halal chocolate since 2004. I spoke to Khalid Sharif, who set up the company, and asked him what had given him the idea. I mean, personally, starting from myself as a consumer, I, I felt there was a need for more halal products. And I'm a big chocolate fan, and I know a lot of my friends are chocolate fans, and we've, we realised that... Um, there weren't that many chocolates on the market that were suitable for Muslims if you looked further down into the product. A lot of the products may have been vegetarian at face value, but when you took it a stage further down, they weren't actually vegetarian. They used alcohol or animal fats in the processing. The vegetarians' friends, the, the Jewish friends, they, they, they did the sort of groundwork on this, ensuring that products were suitable for them at a deeper level. So we just really followed in that and realised that we had problems. Okay, so you started out in IT, didn't you? So mm. then you had this sort of road to Damascus conversion towards the joys of halal chocolate. How did you go about sort of starting that? It was very tough. Uh, being very frank, we, we failed quite a few times in a few products before we started. Gave up a well-paid job, worried the whole family, thinking what on earth are you doing with your life, but got started on that. And I feel it was, it was important to come out with chocolate products, but not only that, it was important for me to have a company and a product that looked out for the community. Because we try to, for example, get all our product packaging designed by young artists that encourage young artists. We use all our marketing material to support charities. We give a percentage of our profits to charities. We support campaigns such as the, the Muslim Youth Helpline Prisoner campaign. So it's like chocolate doing you good as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important for us because I think Muslims have, have lacked those products in terms of dietary, but also they're not too happy with um, large corporations that haven't looked out for the community. And whereabouts can you buy this? So this is um, I've got this is Uma Caramel, and uh, this is uh, this is sort of graffiti style. I can't even read it. Yeah, it's, what's it's, that called? It's Uma Orange, and it's 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 funny because we got. It's um, one of your young designers who's, who's done it in a way that you can't even read the title. A brilliant artist who actually merged Arabic writing with graffiti writing. Ah, that's so probably it's, why it's incomprehensible. Yes, yeah, so I know. No, I mean, a lot of the the, the youngsters can read it, no problems. <laughs> so where do where where do we buy this stuff from? Um, we started, for example, in small Islamic bookshops. We went into um, corner shops. We did a few universities. And our big break was we got into Tesco's. We started with six stores trialing, and the the sales were brilliant. So we then moved into sort of 17 stores. We also started with six as the stores were going to more of those, and 27 Morrison. So across the country, um, in Asian areas, you can now buy buy the product. And the idea behind it is that it's it's uh, it's halal. And what does that actually mean in terms of the actual cooking of it or the making of it, rather? No, absolutely, because, I mean, it... it it often comes up as sort of a, a funny question in terms of what on earth is a halal chocolate bar. We look at a product at face value. We say, yeah, it may have a vegetarian ingredient, but how did you get that ingredient? Maybe you filtered it, you processed it with 
animal fats are alcohol. We look at, it, it, it sounds ridiculous, but we look at the glue within the wrapper. We say, are there any pork products within the glue? The preservatives within the film of the wrapper, are there any animal fats there? Within the manufacturing process, have any alcohol-based cleaning agents been That's used? That's pretty hardcore, that. It does, and it's not because we've created this. It's because of the demand is there. And I think when large corporations ignore the demands of the small consumer, uh, someone else will come in there, and it's, it's our opportunity. So with halal butchers, there's a certificate of, you know, th- this is a halal butcher. So have you got some sort of super halal certificate for chocolate as well? well there is actually no sort of standard certification body in the UK, official certification body for halal. We feel we go further than any of the other halal providers. And the reason we say it is because when you think of halal, you think of meat and you think of poultry. So they, they're not yet ready for a lot of these issues. So we've gone to a level deeper than that. And I think we're probably leading in terms of, sort of certification beyond a lot of these existing ones. But there are some good ones out there. And in terms of the success you've had with this, you've got it out into Tesco's, you've got it out into the main stores, you're obviously going to try and expand out of it. Are you thinking of broadening out from your products as well and making more other, other things apart from chocolate? Definitely. We've, um, we've been asked by the supermarkets to expand the range. Um, there's a great demand for... you can for... hear rustling, by the way, just because I'm, I'm, I'm unwrapping this bar. <laughs> there's, there's been a great demand um, for products that meet the dietary requirement, but also sort of community requirement. And I think we need to now look at the, the, the initial market research we did and see what do we do next. We're looking at more chocolate products. We're looking at other sweet confectionery products. We're looking at other general foods. But we have to really take it slowly at one stage at a time and make sure we don't overstretch, even though there is a great demand for it. So I'm just tasting it now. There isn't going to be any difference, is it, between this and... Any, any, any regular other kind of caramel chocolate or whatever, is there? Yeah, I think one of the key things is, I mean, you're, you're looking at a second, third generation Muslims. They're, they're not going to put up with inferior products. They've, come, they've become used to a certain standard of product and certain standard of marketing. Um, there's no way we'd even consider bringing something out unless it met or sort of beat the existing standards out there. But in terms of cost as well, you know how um, organic chocolate, for example, or organic food is more expensive mm. because of the process. Is this chocolate bar, I mean, how much, how much would this cost, for example? It retails at 45p in stores, so it's comparable in terms of cost. But, yeah, there is an additional cost for us in terms of producing these products. Um, and it is niche market. But as we've seen before, in terms of the, the other organic products, the, the smoothies, the, the niche markets are actually quite big once you get into them. So you, you sort of strike me as a sort of a Muslim Willy Wonka. I've, I've had a lot of names called, um, one of them was, yeah, Muslim Willy Wonka. I've been called um, Brother Charlie quite a few times. Because what you could do is you could have a golden ticket, which um, gives you a, a, a ticket to Mecca or something. <laughs> well, we might hire you for our marketing team. You never know. You come up with some good ideas. Now, I've just come back from Toronto, where I was meeting the creators and stars of Canada's hit comedy series, Little Mosque on the Prairie. The show launched earlier this year and it's been sold already to France and the makers are in talks to have it screened in Britain and the United States. Little Mosque on the Prairie is about a small group of Muslims in a rural community in Canada and its gentle comedy has proved something of a huge hit in its home country. Brother Omar, that was a wonderful sermon, just Oh, wonderful. Yeah, sir, I'm so glad you liked it. Mm. What was your favorite part? The end bit. The, the ending bit. Uh, Sarah, Ryan, did you enjoy the sermon? What you could hear over Yasser's snoring? Sleeping allows your words to penetrate my subconscious. Oh, then you must have that opera I took you to last week completely memorized. My darling, she's my favorite spin doctor. Yasser, try to be truthful. You're in a mosque. Quiet, please. Quiet. 
Well, here I am at the Richmond Hill Curling Club. It's just on the outskirts of Toronto. And inside the curling club, they're filming scenes for the new series of Little Mosque on the Prairie. It's a Muslim sitcom which airs on Canadian television and it was created and written by Zaka Nawaz who's originally from Liverpool, who was born in Liverpool, but then moved to Canada. And I'm here, I'm going to be talking to Zaka Nawaz. I'm also going to be talking to some of the cast and hopefully the director as well to talk about this programme and the kind of impact that it's had on Canadian television and actually across the world. Zarka Nawaz, who created and wrote Little Mosque on the Prairie, was born in Liverpool and raised in Toronto, and now she lives in Regina. And uh, she drew on her own experiences in her own life to create Little Mosque on the Prairie. And so when I spoke to her, I wanted to know what it was that there weren't more Muslims moving into comedy. Every Muslim country has its own culture of humor within their own language and their own culture. So yeah, it does exist within Muslim countries within their own language. But Muslims in North America are coming into their own in this generation, where we've reached a critical mass, where there are Muslim communities that exist that you can make fun of, because prior to that they were too small or too de you know too disparate to make fun of. And so now we have finally a Muslim community where there's a mosque community where you can go to and talk about it as a culture, and that culture had to exist first. And so it took a while for that community to come of age, because you know, the Muslim community in North America is a very young community still. I'm only second generation, like my parents immigrated here from Pakistan. So you know, so within you know, two to three generations, we are achieving what you know, other communities who in a similar time frame have achieved, but they've been here much longer. And you know, in order to, first of all, you have to get here, then you get, have to get assim assimilated, then you have to become establishment, and you have, then you have to have kids who aren't being doctors and lawyers and engineers all the time and picking other more innovative and creative professions. So I think you know, once you reach that level, then that's when you see the comics and the comedians and the sitcoms start to develop. And you're seeing that more and more now. Assalamualaikum, Marlon. I'd like you to come by the mosque later for your conversion. The Shahada. Excellent. Allahu Akbar! Oh, 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 how joyous! At this rate, we'll convert every white person down to Islam! <laughs> uh, my name is Zabe Sheikh, and I play the character of Amar, who is the Imam of the mosque. My parents are from Pakistan, and I'm first generation Canadian, born in Toronto. And, you know, very much a, a North American Muslim. A North American who happens to be Muslim is how I view myself. And that's what I like about the character, especially of Amar and Ryan. They are both Canadians who uh, are practicing their faith because they wish to, but they don't wish not to be North American. I'm Amar, the Imam of this mosque. An Imam is like a priest. I oh, know, I heard your khutbah. I'm Marlon. Wow, Arabic, that's impressive. And what about the sense of the humour about it as well? Because this is it's predominantly, this is a comedy programme, it's an entertainment programme. And again, when you think about representation of Muslims, it does tend to be within quite a narrow territory often, doesn't it? Uh, it does. It tends to be very narrow. And I think that sometimes Muslims also buy into that narrowness, not necessarily on the, you know, quote-unquote terrorist viewpoint, but also the fact that uh, so much of... Muslims, and I'll say we because I am one, get uptight about how we're being perceived and whether we're being perceived seriously or not and are people blaspheming against us or not. And at the end of the day, if we also can take a step, as I think we do on this show, and show that Muslims are, are human beings. Isn't that wonderful? A convert. I am Babar. 
Hello, I'm right here. I'm a convert too. Yes, but he's serious. The success of the show lies, I think, less in its Muslimness than in the fact that we're just showing a culture that is different from uh, what one might consider typical North American culture or typical Caucasian North American culture and the clashes that ensue and the hilarity that ensues when you try to deal with that. So uh, I think it's, I think it again, it's not about Muslims, it's just about the fact that there's, you're watching two cultures discover their similarities while acknowledging their differences. There are other characters in Little Mosque on the Prairie apart from Muslims, and the most important one probably is Fred Tupper, and he's a right-wing shock doc DJ in the community, and he's played by the actor Neil Crone. I live in a very small town. I live in a very rural town. A very, a, you know, it's, it's a full of Fred Tuppers. It really is. And and uh, here's a classic example of the the night the show premiered on CBC. Uh, we went into the into the, the local watering hole in town, and we invited a bunch of our friends to come in. And, uh, and they have a big screen TV there, and we talked the bartender into giving us the, 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 the signal that night so we could watch the opening of Little Mosque on the Prairie. And there was a hockey game on at the same time. And uh, in order to get Little Mosque on the Prairie on, the bartender had to go in, turn the channel from the hockey game, put it onto our show. So the minute he turns the channel, of course, the bar full of rednecks goes, hey, what the hell are you doing? You know? But then the minute they saw my face up there, the bar went dead silent, and 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 they and they clapped, and they loved the fact that their local guy was part of the show, and they were very very polite, and they actually they really enjoyed the show. So, that is a, is a testament, I think, to what we do. You're we're a doing. cultural ambassador. Absolutely. <laughs> the character of Babur, who is the traditionalist Muslim, is played by Manoj Sood, and when I spoke to him, I asked him if he thought that there was something special about Canadian television, which had produced a program like Little Mosque on the Prairie. Well, Canada is a very, very multicultural country, um, and the different cultures, you know, we, we mix here um, quite freely, quite more, I think, than European countries, or even more than the States. But I think that um, that type of assimilation is um, eventual. And also, you know, a lot of people come to North America from other parts of the world to get away from the fact that in many countries, people stay within their own groups. My name is John Doyle and I'm the television critic for the Globe and Mail newspaper. As a television critic, I found little, the Little Mosque phenomenon fascinating on two levels. First of all, it achieved a lot of attention. And the reason it got the attention was because the concept deriving comedy from a small Muslim community in a small town in the Canadian prairies was avant-garde as far as the U.S. media is concerned. Um, in, the, in the contemporary United States, there is such paranoia and distrust of multiculturalism in general and the Muslim community specifically that the idea of taking comedy from the circumstance that is in Little Mosque just seemed uh, outrageous to the, to the American media. They gave it a lot of attention, and that helped drive the attention in Canada. Then when it did air, I think it was fascinating to see how, how it developed and what kind of comedy it was. It's actually a very gentle television situation comedy. Did it make you laugh? Uh, at times it did. It's not exactly a laugh-out-loud every 60-second show. There is a touch of earnestness. I think, in Little Mosque, which is also very Canadian. It's about reminding 
the Canadian viewers that multiculturalism is part of the fabric of Canadian society and it always has been and we have to learn to deal with it even in the post 9-11 world. Television critic John Doyle there wrapping up my report from Toronto. Now, from Canada to Wales, where this month's local elections saw the election of the first ethnic minority assembly member in Wales. Mohamed Asker was voted into the South Wales East area of Applied Cymru. He's 62 years old, he's an accountant, born in Peshawar in 1945. He now lives in Newport. And when I spoke to him, I asked him to tell me a little bit more about the 22,000 Muslims who live in Wales. Muslims are... The majority uh, mostly are in southeast Wales from Swansea, Cardiff and Newport area and uh, they are here for last over a century from the North African sites and they are here, Somali and Yemeni sort of thing. But they haven't been include, you know, participating in full community level. They just uh, lived very coastal areas in Cardiff till assembly came into being. And this area is totally transformed. Muslims are from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. And they're scattered all over. And what kind of jobs are most of them involved in? In my time, you know, there are three, third generation here. When we came earlier, there were mostly doctors and students, professionals. Now is things, are cha- things are changed now because general pattern, not very many are coming in professions. Most of our children who are getting educated In Wales, they just go for England and get jobs there. That's another problem. We we want to sort it out through assembly. Not very prosperous jobs at the moment available for our children here. How long have you lived in Wales? Uh, Newport, I work. I lived there 37, 38 years now. And why did you think that Plaid Cymru was the political road to go down rather than, say, the Labour Party? Plaid Cymru is a party of people of Wales. And we are people of Wales, and they represent, and they give us opportunity to join them and open the door for us. So in terms of your own identity, what, what sort of order would you put it? So you're Welsh, you're Pakistani, you're British, you're Muslim. How would you describe, what order would you describe your own identity? I'm in a Welsh first and then Pakistani. And what's quite interesting about that is, you know, you think about, for example, the British National Party, and that, that's seen as very much an exclusive white party but in wales and in scotland as well the nationalist parties aren't seen like that why is that you know this is a democratic country you got your opinion and all political parties got their opinion plight Cymru got their own opinion they had a very different impression not long ago but bringing all the ethnic origin you know original people into it they are the one who opened door for us and yes, now we're trying to... <laughs> but that's not really answering my question. I was, what I wanted to know was, when people talk about Britishness, they normally talk about, you know, if you want to be Muslim or British, uh, Pakistani or Asian, it's best to sort of have a British identity, link up to Britishness. But, but you're saying that it's better to link up with the actual country you're in, as it's Welsh or Scotland. Yes, Welsh is a part of United Kingdom at the moment, isn't it? So indirectly it is Britishness, but Welsh origin. And would you like to see independence for Wales? With the full consent of the general public of Wales when time comes, not at this stage. Do you speak Welsh yourself as well? No, that's a surprise to you, isn't it? The party of Wales is open to everybody, no matter what language you speak, as long as you live and work in Wales. Are you thinking of taking any classes so you can sing the Welsh national anthem? (laughs) I know a little bit, but I can't. (laughs) I'm not taking classes. What what bit do you know? (laughs) Yahida. You know, not much, not much. Okay, well, obviously you've been elected to represent everybody. So what are your priorities for now that you are actually in the Assembly? To eradicate poverty. Poverty is the biggest culprit. 
that's quite an ambition for one person. Well, with the help of party and political system, we are here, do the job for our communities, see what we can do, bringing inward, inward investment wherever we can and get the prosperity into the areas. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for spending some time and uh, sharing some of your thoughts with us. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sir Fraz. God bless. Finally, for this week's programme, an exhibition of holy books. Sacred is an exhibition at the British Library which displays historic Qurans, Bibles and Torahs alongside each other. The idea behind the exhibition is to show the ways that the three big Abrahamic faiths have borrowed and influenced each other. Now, I spoke to Colin Baker, who's one of the curators of the exhibition, and I asked him to show me around. We're focusing on these three religions because we want to show the commonalities. They are Abrahamic religions. They come from a common region, the Middle East. We want to show the importance of their sacred texts, how they've developed, how they've emerged as books. We want to show this from some of the oldest examples we have in the collection and from some of the most beautiful examples, how they illuminated the texts, how they decorated them. When the visitor comes to this exhibition, it's going to be a feast for the eyes. Well, why don't you just walk me through and show me some of the highlights. How long did it actually take to kind of gather these texts together? Well, as you can imagine, an exhibition of this size takes some planning. It took over four years. Most of the items on exhibition, the manuscript items, most of them are from the British Library's collections. The objects um, we have in the exhibition are on loan. So what's the first thing you're going to show me? Well, the first thing the visitor is going to see are three iconic examples of sacred texts from each of the religions. They're going to see a Hebrew illuminated Bible produced in Lisbon in 1482. This style of illumination is certainly got Islamic styles, arabesques and lace work. So if it wasn't for the fact that the text is in Hebrew, it does actually have... Uh, it, the style looks like something that could possibly from, be from a Quran. Absolutely. And the next thing is a New Testament. New Testament, 10th century copy, showing a portrait of Luke. It's a very old copy, quite rare to see a miniature from this period. And then next to that you've got a... We've got a magnificent Quran. This Quran was actually produced in Mosul at the beginning of the 14th century. It was commissioned by Sultan Uljaitu. It was originally in 30 volumes, this Quran but only a few volumes have survived from this multi-volume set. And these are all part of the British Library's own collection? Absolutely. And is it rare for them all to be replaced and exhibited together? This is the first time that we have exhibited the three sacred texts um, together. And this is the whole point of the exhibition. We want the visitor to draw their own conclusions about the commonalities and difference and how they have influenced each other in the way they've produced their books, um, their artistic traditions and the overlaps. Sacred, the exhibition, runs at the British Library till the 23rd of September 2007 and then it tours the country. And if you want more details, just visit the British Library's website. That's about it from me. I'm in Hay from Saturday for The Guardian's Daily Haycast. Riazat is back next week with Islamophonic. But from me and Francesca Panetta, who produced the programme, it's goodbye. Guardian Unlimited.